Well, we here in Foundations have been walking through what the Bible says about parenting. Last week, as we have gotten into the Psalms now, Jonathan spoke on Psalm 78 about our responsibility as parents to proclaim the greatness of God to the generations to come, to make known his wondrous works. And today we are going to be continuing in the book of Psalms in Psalm 127. Psalm 127, if you want to turn there with me. We'll be looking at what this psalm says about God, who is the sovereign over your family. I recently had the opportunity to speak on another subject um, about Ezra, kind of a a small kind of biographical walk through his life. And as I read through Ezra and Nehemiah, those books chronicle the return of the Israelites back to Jerusalem following the exile in Babylon. And God had basically tasked them over a period of decades to do three major things. First, they were to rebuild the temple. Then they were to institute worship in the temple. And then God wanted them to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And those were not easy tasks because there were many adversaries that were trying to oppose them and keep them from doing what God had had them do. And so God raised up some pretty amazing men to accomplish those tasks. You'll probably remember that Joshua and Zerubbabel were the people God tasked to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And these men were very cunning. They were hardworking and they were very resourceful and they got the job done. Nehemiah was in charge of rebuilding the city walls and he was a man filled with zeal, filled with courage, and he also was very hardworking. He's described as being a man with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other as he defended the wall against enemies and he built it with the other hand. Ezra was given a difficult task of reinstituting temple worship there in in the New Jerusalem Temple. He's described as being a bold and skillful man who had set his heart, dedicated himself to studying, practicing, and teaching the Word of God. Now, all of these men worked really hard, and they were very successful. They all enjoyed success, but their success and their achievements were not attributed. The success that they had, the the glory was not given to them, not their strength or not their efforts. Their principles in their lives that we should follow, their faithfulness, their hard work, as we are parents raising our children— but their hard work and their faithfulness is, what, is not what is attributed to their success, but rather the sovereign over the outcome and the journey was Yahweh. And as you read through those books, there's a phrase that resurfaces time and again. When the kings let them go back to Jerusalem, they had no business doing that. Kings don't let mountains of gold and captive slaves return. It just doesn't happen. But they were able to return. When their enemies were defeated, when their work was completed, The text says over and over again that the mighty hand of Yahweh was upon them. Yahweh gets the credit and he gets all of the glory for their success. And that is very much the same attitude that we find here in Psalm 127. Because we must be faithful, we must be devoted parents. We must work hard to train our children. But without the hand of Yahweh upon us, all of our efforts, all of our hard work are useless. So let's read this together here in Psalm 127, just five verses. 
It begins, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies. So you'll notice here in the, in the marking here um, that this is a song of ascent. That means that this song was composed to be sung as Israelites gathered from all over Israel and ascended towards Jerusalem as they walked up the hill to Jerusalem as families gathered together as pilgrims got closer and closer to Jerusalem, these songs, there's 15 of them, were, were, would be raised in glory to God as they praised Yahweh. This is one of those psalms. You'll also see that it was written by Solomon. This, of course, is David's son and successor, who was the wisest man, save Jesus, that ever lived. And he presided over a time of immense wealth and prosperity over Israel. You can read about that in 1 Kings 8 to 10, where Israel comes very close, the closest that they ever had come to being what Yahweh had for them. That's a blessing to Israel and also a blessing to the nations around them. Of course, sadly, Solomon turned his heart towards idolatry and the uh, kingdom fell as a result. Now, although, although this song is a song of praise, it's classified as a wisdom psalm. So that means that it is part of Solomon's proverbial wisdom. And so we can take these things as a truism, but not a binding promise on our life. So this song is about God's sovereignty over the family. The family is established by God and used by him for the furtherance of the kingdom. And he has tasked us as the leaders of our families to do some very important things. One... It's important that we, we follow God's way in rearing our children because we dearly love our kids. We want the best for them. And it's also important because there are eternal implications. We are raising the next generation of people who will be the leaders of Christ's church. And so we're tempted because of the importance of this thing to wrestle control away and try to rely on our own ingenuity, our own ability, and our own wisdom to raise a faithful family. Solomon, however, says that without God's blessing, all efforts on our part are vain. So how do we raise families that are a blessing to the church and a blessing to the community around us? Well, dependence on the Lord is an absolute necessity if you want to have a God-blessed home. And here in Psalm 127, Solomon gives you four ways that God sovereignly blesses the family so that you can rest in his faithfulness. Four ways that God sovereignly blesses the family so that you can rest in his faithfulness. Because any success that we enjoy as parents is because of God's mighty and good hand helping us. Solomon begins by explaining in verse 1 that God builds the home. Unless the Lord builds the house, he says, they labor in vain who build it. Now there is a small debate about which house Solomon is talking about here. Some say that this is a song of ascent, therefore he's talking of the temple or God's house. However, most people, most scholars say that this 
is a reference to the family. Um, the word is used often in the Old Testament in reference to the family, this word for house. One example is in Joshua 24:15, something familiar to us, where Joshua says we need to choose whom we're going to serve. Either we're going to serve the, the idols and the gods in the land of Canaan where we're going into, or we can serve Yahweh. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the same word. Our, my household, the people that I have a sphere of influence over, we are going to serve the Lord. So this is a reference, this house is a reference to family. In fact, the Hebrew word for son, daughter, and home are all the same root word. You need sons and daughters to build up and constitute a home in the same way you need brick and mortar and wood to build a house. So in light of that, I think the best way to understand this word home is as a family. So unless God builds the family, those who labor to build the family, that's you and I as parents, laboring to build our families, we build it in vain. Now this brings us peace because Yahweh is in control. Now this is the first of three things that, that Solomon says are vain. Today we typically use that word for somebody who has a high opinion of themselves. Somebody who looks in the mirror a lot, primping, that type of thing. They are vain or they have vanity. But the Hebrew word means something else. It means pointless, worthless, or futile. Futile, a futile endeavor. Something that has no possibility of, of success. You've probably heard of an exercise in futility. That's what this would be. Um, I had one track event when I was young. One event as a track participant. And it was an exercise in futility. Um, of course, when you're young, you always think that you're fast. You always have the idea that you are the fastest kid out there. So in the sixth grade, I went out for track and I tried out for the 100-yard dash. And I didn't make it. I didn't make the team. But I was the sucker that they asked to come to the track meets as this sprinter alternate. So I got to go to the track meets in case someone else got sick or didn't make it. They called me in. And I was okay with that because I got a uniform. That's all I cared about. Well, the first, first track meet arrives, and sure enough, our school's 400-meter runner didn't show up. And so the, the track coach said, you're in. you got to run the 400. I said, all right, what's the 400? <laughs> <laughs> she said, it's one time around the track. I said, okay, that's easy. One time around? I'd never even seen a full track. Jogged around it. It's like, that's easy. No problem. But, it, I mean, it's time to go. She's been looking for me, so they shuffle me onto the track. I'm told where to line up, and then the gun goes off, and we take off. Now, I was basically cannon fodder. Like, there was, I didn't know how to run the race. I was there to fill a spot, but I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to win either. But I didn't know how to race, so I put my head down, and I ran flat out as fast as I could. And, I mean, I was in the zone for about 50 yards. And I ran as hard as I could, head down, and we rounded the last corner, and I look up, and there's one guy in front of me, one guy in front of me, who was in second to last place. <laughs> and my legs are like liquid fire, and I think, I am not getting last place in this race. I am going to dig down into the deepest part of me and try my hardest, and I'm going to catch that guy. And it did no good whatsoever. He just <laughs> took off, and I almost literally crawled to the finish line multiple seconds after the final guy, the last guy had, had passed. 
So that is the definition of a vain attempt. There was no way that I was going to win that race. No matter how hard I tried to win, no matter how much I wanted it, it wasn't going to happen. It was a vain attempt. I had neither the talent, the ability, or the training required to win the race. Solomon is teaching here that without God's sovereign hand blessing our efforts, our parenting will not succeed. So God must build the house. Now this, of course, is a metaphor. He's not saying that God literally puts on a work belt and pounds the nails to build your family. But how does God build? Well, we read in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How does God build? He builds with his sovereign hand through his people. And for the last 2,000 years, that's exactly what's happened. The Holy Spirit has used flawed people like you and I to build his church because none of us have the ability on our own to persuade even one man to change even one heart, let alone build the church. How does God build the family? Well, by the sovereign, his sovereign hand through the labor and faith of parents like you and I, who are tools to accomplish his purposes. We faithfully labor, but God builds the house. So seek his help and trust him to do it. For your family to be a blessing to the church and to be a, a, a blessing to those around us, we must be seeking God's help and trusting him. He must be the architect. Before you even pour the foundation of a house, you have to have a good plan. And we have the greatest plan imaginable. We have the word of God that gives us the directions that we need to build a family. God has a design for the family. And one of the, the articles of this blueprint is in Ephesians chapter 5. God has given us instructions for husbands who are the head of their home. You have to be a head. You have to lead your home, men, loving, sacrificing, leading your wife, and shepherding your children. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, ask yourself, does this describe me? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorified church, not having spot or blemish or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless before him in love. So we should, men, be loving and giving and sacrificing and cleansing, immersing our families in the word of God, bathing them in the word and purifying them through that. A wife, as we look at God's design for the family, must submit lovingly and willingly and respect her husband. We back up a couple verses in Ephesians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. But it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in all things. This is a command for every Christian wife. So, men, we are to be loving, leading, and shepherding our homes. Women, you must be submitting and respectful. But I can tell you those things are not easy. And so there's a temptation to try to build according to a different plan. To build your family a different way. But to build according to a different plan will not find godly success. So God has given us the design for the family in, in Scripture. 
and to build according to a worldly plan would be wholly foolhardy. So God must be the architect, but he also must build the structure. And he does that through his word. We all remember what happened to the structure built on the sand. Those who heard Jesus' teaching and disregarded it, they fell into ruin. When you build your family on principles outside of Scripture, they are doomed to fail. However, those who heard Jesus' words and acted on them stood through the fiercest storm. God builds his family through your faithfulness, through your faithful trust in his word and his plan. So obey it. Rest in his sovereignty because he will bring the results. So the next metaphor here is also in verse 1. Parents, we must trust God's sovereignty to build our home and we must, protect him to prote- we must trust him to protect the home because God protects the home. It says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. A city is made up of many homes, many people, and in the ancient world, a guard and a night watch was necessary to protect the people, the families, the homes inside that city. David had greatly expanded Jerusalem when he became king. He expanded the walls. He added watchtowers around them. And then he employed guards, made sure that they were well-staffed, made sure that they were alert and equipped to do their job. But he didn't trust in his guards and their equipment. He didn't trust any of that because he knew that Yahweh was his protector. We read that all through his Psalms. Psalm 61.3, a short sampling. Psalm 61.3, for you have been a refuge to me, he says, a tower of strength against the enemy. Psalm 59.9, I will keep watch for you, O my strength, because you, O God, are my fortress. Psalm 62.7 says, my salvation and my honor rest on God. My strong rock, my refuge is in God. David's enemies were many, surrounded on all sides by enemies. And he was responsible to protect an entire country, but he didn't fear because Yahweh was his protector and he trusted in him. Now we could stand here and talk until the middle of next week about all of the things, all of the dangers that could potentially hit your family. There's a never-ending supply of those and therefore there is a never-ending supply of things that we can purchase that supposedly protect our kids. And many of these things are good. But I mean, we can buy helmets and car seats and doorknob covers, cabinet guards, outlet covers, gates, furniture anchors, corner bumpers. I didn't even know that was a thing, corner bumpers. One study said that some families spend more than $10,000 to childproof their home. Now, a lot of that stuff is good. I'm not saying that it's bad, but don't forget that Yahweh must protect your family. That's not even including all of the digital protection that we need that's required to protect the eyes and hearts of our kids as they get older and they get on the internet. And you will run yourself ragged with anxiety trying to account for every possible accident that your kids could go through, or you can trust God. You can be wise, make wise decisions, but put your trust in the Creator. Because unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. David knew that it was wise and prudent to build the walls and supply them, fortify his walls, but he didn't trust in the walls. He trusted in God. And we know that Satan 
I mean, think about this. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy your family, and he can do that in a hundred, in a thousand different ways. And as alarming as that is, we never fear. Not because we have a cabinet latch, not because we have the latest, greatest digital protection and internet filter on our, on our computers. No, we never fear because Yahweh is our protector. In Psalm 23, David talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's an idiom for the scariest place imaginable. Okay, so even while David is walking through the scariest place that you can imagine in your mind, he says, I never fear because Yahweh is with me. His rod and his staff protect me. We have that same God protecting us and protecting our kids. We need to trust in him. So God is the sovereign who builds the home. He is the sovereign who protects our home. God is also the sovereign who provides for our home. Verse 2 says, It is vain for you to rise up early and retire late to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So in this final example of a vain exercise, the word vanity is moved to the front of the clause to emphasize the utter futility of our human efforts without God's blessing. But how many times have you lain awake at night thinking about how you're going to make ends meet, thinking about the new bill that's come in, or burned the candle at both ends, rising early and going to bed late to provide for your family, to provide what Solomon says are the bread of painful labors or the fruit of anxious toil. Your version might say the bread of sorrows because it fills you with sorrow as you're laboring to provide and you're worrying about the next day's provision. But again, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself and your ability? If so, I could say, yeah, you should worry because there's a lot of things out there that we can't control. But Solomon counsels something else. The truth is that Yahweh himself will provide for your family. It says, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. That's, that's another way of saying on the other hand. So he's presenting two ideas. One, a life of labor, anxiety, worry, or bread of sorrows, burning the candle at both ends and missing out on opportunities, precious moments with your children. Or on the other hand, life of labor and yes, that is still a part of our life because labor is good, but a life of labor and trusting in God's provision because he has infinite resources. He can provide for you even in your sleep. And notice here that you are described as his beloved. You are his children and he is the faithful father who delights in giving what you need to his children. You are his children. You are also the sheep of his pasture and he is the good shepherd who can be completely trusted. And this trust leads to peace. The alternative, of course, is a life of futile anxiety. Now, quickly, there is a balance that's necessary here. This is not teaching laziness. It's not teaching that labor and effort and watchfulness are not important. In fact, if you look at the words describing those putting forth the effort here in these first two verses, it doesn't say that these things are bad. It says that we must labor. That's toil or exerting yourself. It says we have to keep watch. That's a, a wakeful, sleepless concern. 
It says rising early, retiring late, painful labors, going through strenuous, painful work. The word used there is that of childbirth. You ladies know a little bit about that probably. I do not. So this is not teaching that labor and watchfulness are not necessary, but rather it's teaching you to trust in God. Trust in him to be the builder and the protector and the provider of your family. It's emphasizing that we can find sleep and rest in his security, confident, satisfied, knowing that your family is in the hands of God Almighty. And to trust in yourself, Solomon says, is vain. Now that leads us to the final point here, and that is that God rewards the home. As we read through these verses, we see that God has given us children. The sovereign Lord has given us children who, is, who are the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing. You'll notice in these final verses that they're called a gift, a reward, a blessing, and a source of pride and protection. First, our children are a gift. Something left to an heir. This word means an inheritance. At the center of the idea is, of course, a gift, but also a responsibility. We kind of recognize this in our society. If you have a wealthy person die, they don't dump all of the inheritance on an immature child. It's always a shame when you read those stories about some youngster foolishly squandering the wealth that their parent has given them after toiling for a generation, it's gone. And so often, inheritance is kept in a trust until the child is responsible and mature enough to spend it correctly and responsibly. Because a gift or literally an inheritance here, gives great opportunity, but also requires responsible use. Well, Solomon says that our children are an inheritance from God, and God requires proper care, righteous and wise rearing of our children, discipline, training. To be a blessing in your family, your kids are going to need that. To be an asset to the kingdom, we are going to have to discipline our kids. Be responsible because the inheritance left to us by the Father is to carry the torch of the gospel that's been burning for 2,000 years. That's what we've been entrusted with. Children are a gift from God, but he, he expects us to responsibly raise them. So children are a gift or an inheritance. Verse 3 also says that they are a reward. Reward means recompense or for wages or wages paid or, as it's translated here, a reward. This stresses the, the bliss that comes and the joyful benefits that children bring by God into the marriage. And in the ancient world, they got this. If they had a child or multiple children that lived to adolescence, it was a blessing from God because the infant mortality rate was 50%. 50% of kids died in their infancy. So if you had a child who lived to an adolescent, it was a reward from God, and you recognize that. You would never neglect or fail to love something so precious as that. They were the fruit of the womb. They were the bounty given by God to bless the marriage. They were never viewed as a burden or an impediment to some other goal, as many in our culture view them today. Rather, they were the success. They were the blessing. They were the reward. And that's something that we need to remember because even 
in our lives, our priorities can get out of whack. The culture is constantly feeding us the lie that we need more gadgets and more trinkets and bigger and better this and bigger and better that. So we have to work more to gain more stuff. Also, the culture says that we need more me time, right? I deserve time for me. And before long, your children, rather than being viewed as a gift and a reward from God, begin to be a hurdle in the way of your new goals. And Solomon says, no. He says, remind yourself that children are the reward. They are the gift that brings the greatest pleasure and joy in your life. So children are a reward and a source of joy, but they also bring great value to your family. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and they bring blessing. Children are a blessing. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, it says, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. Here the father is pictured as a warrior with a bow, and his children are arrows. The word warrior literally means a mighty hero. So the, the idea here is a very skilled man with a bow who finds comfort when he has arrows. A skilled man with a bow has no comfort if his arrows are gone. If you're out hunting and you realize that you don't have any ammunition, all the animals are safe. Of course, if I have ammunition in my gun, the animals are still safe. But for most people, that's true. So the father feels comforted. In the same way a warrior feels comforted with arrows, a father feels comforted with a house full of children who can defend and honor the family. Of course, the opposite is true as well. It doesn't matter how skilled you are with a bow if you have no arrows. So a man is blessed with a quiver full of arrows, or he is blessed with a home full of children. And this word blessed means favored or happy, and it's in the plural. So it's literally bountiful blessings upon blessings. That's how the Bible views children. That's how we should view our children, as a bountiful blessing. They're also viewed here as arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, millennia, until the invention of the catapult, arrows were the most effective weapon in both defense and attack and warfare. And sons and daughters here are likened to arrow, arrows. So there are a few truths that must be implemented early in Christian child rearing because arrows must be shaped. They must be shaped. No arrow begins straight and ready for battle. It's a branch of a tree. It's filled with knots. It's got a curve to it. So it needs to be molded and sanded to shoot straight. Arrows also need the right fletching or it's going to veer off course. You could aim it true. It doesn't have fletching. It's going to veer off course. So you, they, they pick feathers and they, they pick and they shape them and they attach them just right to the arrow so that they spin in flight and it hits the target. Is that right, Chip? Okay. He's an archer. I am not. Um, also, a dull arrow means nothing if it hits the target. It's not going to penetrate the target. So the point needs to be painstakingly sharpened to penetrate or else it's useless in battle. Parents, your children are born sinners. They're unable to walk the straight and narrow path of righteousness that God would have for them. They need to be disciplined. They need to be molded. They need to be trained to walk the straight and upright path. 
The edge of their mind needs to be honed and sharpened by the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. They need to be well-equipped, knowledgeable in the word of God, love the word of God in order to be effective kingdom citizens, which is what we are building in our homes, armed with the gospel, ready to leave the house and be used by God to penetrate the hearts of unbelievers. So arrows need to be shaped. Arrows also need to be aimed and released. Does no good if the arrow is in the quiver. They need to be sent forth by the bow toward the target. And there's an old saying that says, says if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. We can't let our kids be aimed at nothing, wandering around in the culture and in the world. Because truth is, your kids are already aimed at something. They're bent towards worldliness. And he'll gladly continue down that path if we don't aim them in the right direction. So we need to release our kids and encourage them towards godly pursuits. Eternal purposes. Encourage them towards sharing the gospel. Being a part of the Great Commission. Grounded in the local church. The world wants to aim your kids towards their bent, which is the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. We are, your, are their parents. We hold the bow. We need to aim them towards selflessly loving God and loving others with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then model that to them. That is a must if they are going to be effective weapons in the Redeemer's hand. Then they will be a blessing to the church, and they will be a blessing to your family. Finally, children are a source of pride and protection. Not sinful pride, of course, but rather they keep your family from shame. Godly children will keep your family from shame. The end of verse 5 says they will not be ashamed, meaning parents, fathers, and mothers will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies at the gate. Arrows protect. Oftentimes in the Psalms, they are mean, it means a literal arrow. Other times it means words. And in light of the final sentence here, the arrows spoken here refer to words of protection rather than physical protection. And the enemies referred to that are at the gate are not a foreign army, but rather a litigation or a dispute or an argument that a family could find themselves in that if they lose that, it leads to shame. They lose that litigation or they lose that argument. Of course, the gate was the normal place of business and for litigation transactions to be argued we see that in ruth chapter 4 there were rooms off to the side of the gate where people would go and transact business or have uh, legal disputes the gate was also the place where people gathered to gossip the town gossips would would go there and they would tell their gossip and let fly everything that they could think of and if your family ended up on the wrong end of that it brought shame to your family david mentions this in psalm 69 where he says, I have endured scorn for your sake, and shame has covered my face. I was sport to them. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am a song of drunkards. So it is entirely possible that right now many of you are going through some sort of slander. If you're not, it is entirely possible that it could happen soon. Slandering the character of you and your family come under some wicked attack by men who oppose the righteous. You may find yourselves at odds in the community, in some school board meeting, or with your neighbors or extended family because you're standing for righteousness. However, a father's sons and daughters 
can testify to your character and come to the family's defense. Your children, when they grow up, will argue in your favor. In your old age, they will care for you. This will happen when, Lord willing, they are walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which they've been called, with a godly character and a good reputation in your community. And as mature, devoted, spiritual stalwarts in the community, they will join you to defend the integrity of the church, and defend the integrity of your family. So your children can become a tower of strength and protection for you, provided that God builds the house, God protects your family, and God provides for you and blesses you with the reward of children. Because truly, we have a monumental task. We have a duty to raise the next leaders of the church. It's really what we've been talking about in our foundations for the last several weeks since we started. And depending on the disposition of your kids, that could be a pretty daunting task. And depending on your situation, it gets more and more daunting as your kids grow older. And we are flawed and imperfect parents, so the, 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 what we try to do is, is be anxious and worry and try harder and harder and harder. It's like if you have a cup full of water in your hand, and you want to keep it in your hand, the more you try to keep it, the more you squeeze it to keep it, the more it's going to fall through your fingers. So let me encourage you. Let this psalm encourage you to rest in God's sovereignty. Remember that your family is a gift from God. Don't forget that your family was established by Him. He didn't make a mistake. He knows what He's doing. He sovereignly appointed you as your children's parents. Don't forget that we can rest in him. He must build. He must protect. He must provide for your family. Remembering that will make you a better, less anxious, more patient, and more faithful parent. And we can't forget to praise God for the wonderful gift that he has given us through our children. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are a faithful provider. Lord, that you are good, that you are uh, that you protect, Lord. We, we pray that we would have faith to allow you to build our homes and protect our homes or that you would provide for our homes. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of children that bring us such great blessing. Lord, I pray that we would keep our hearts and our minds on the fact that they are a blessing and a reward from you. Lord, and ultimately, thank you for the cross of Christ through which all of this is possible, that we can come to you in our sinful state and you will forgive us through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.